Welcome to Top of the Game with Javier Sade, where we talk to amazing people that are shaping the world. These lightning round talks explore what makes remarkable leaders tick. Thinkers and doers pushing humankind forward and at the top of their games. Impactful insights, global perspectives, valuable wisdom you can use every day in your life and work. This is Top of the Game. Enjoy today's episode. Here's Javier. Sandra Campos has had a remarkable career at the intersection of fashion, retail, lifestyle, and digital transformation. A child of immigrant entrepreneurs, she was hands-on with her family's tortilla business and experimented with her own ventures in fashion. She's a three-time CEO, two-time entrepreneur, and a board member. Throughout her career, she's always been a consumer-focused operator. In the executive realm, Sandra served as the first female CEO of iconic global brand retail Diane von Furstenberg, president of a portfolio that included Juicy Couture, Bebe, BCBG, and was president of O Oscar, an Oscar de la Renta division. Sandra was also instrumental in launching other iconic brands that include DKNY and Polo. She serves on several boards, including Big Lots and PedMed. An incredible human being, strap onto your seatbelts. Sandra Campos, welcome to the show. Thank you, Javier. Well, it's awesome. And you and I know each other uh, for a while. And as guests heard on the intro, you've had just a remarkable career touching like every brand, well, not every brand, but a lot of brands that people know, DVF, Polo Jeans, DKNY, De La Renta. It's just, just mind-boggling. But we all start someplace. Kind of where I want to start with you, Sandra, is uh, kind of your origins, your beginnings. Well, I think there's two lessons that I will carry, actually three lessons that I'll carry through and have carried through my entire life. And, and coming from a first-generation family who immigrated from Mexico to parents who were very young, they kind of grew up down the street from each other. So for all intents and purposes, it was somewhat of an arranged marriage and ended up having six kids. I think there's, you know, one very continuous thread here, which my parents became entrepreneurs really out of necessity. My father didn't make it past the sixth grade, moved to El Paso, Texas from California to learn the tortilla factory trade from another uncle, lived with you know the 10 kids there and all of our kids while we were learning it, then moved to a suburb of Dallas to start his own tortilla factory. And I didn't really realize, of course, I always knew I worked in the tortilla factory, but I certainly didn't think about it much because it was one of those experiences that you don't want to be telling people when you're in middle school and high school that you're working in a tortilla factory. Yeah, it's not cool. Not. It's not cool. Not when I was growing up. It certainly wasn't cool. You know, with that, I started working very early and I recently, my mother had moved out of her home in Texas and my sister had packed up some things and sent me a photo and said, here, you know, do you want me to send you these things? One of them was a diary and I was 10 years old and I was talking about how excited I was to go to the factory to work. And on and on about the fact that my mother would pull us out of school when they didn't have employees show up, they would come and get the kids out of school and we would have to go work for the day. But I loved it. And that was what was so crazy about it because I remember not wanting to brag to anyone that I was working at a tortilla factory, but clearly when I was very young, loving it and really enjoying the whole process. So one was work hard, the work ethic of being able to just be there no matter what. The other thing is that has my mother always really enforced and was really 
a big advocate of education. She was constantly after going to and working at a tortilla factory and having six kids and going to the community college to get yet another degree. It was always about continuing education, never being satisfied with what I have learned, but continuing to learn and strive to be more. And then the third thing I think overarchingly is that family is everything. And I started by saying that we moved into my Theo Valdez's house with 10 kids. And then when we went to the suburb of Dallas, then my uncle Teddy and Irma and their kids came to live with us while he learned the tortilla factory. Then he moved back to California to do it. And no matter what, your family's always there. And I think it's such a, an important part and an important lesson that I try to ensure that my kids see through example, mm -hmm. in terms of how my family is there for each other and treats each other and, and really is welcoming no matter what. And I guess if I were to add a fourth, I would say that I've, I've never really allowed what other people said to stay with me. It's hard. Girls are mean in middle school. Girls, mean girls become mean women. <laughs> There's yeah. things that happen, right? But I just have never had a plan B. So I don't let things get to me that way. That is such a amazing and thoughtful answer and so so multifaceted so much to unpack there but obviously if i were to summarize it in four words very strong work ethic staying curious you use the word education but you know as adults we don't necessarily go through formal more formal education but you're always curious asking questions the third that family and connectivity with the community or with your blood family or whatever is really important um, and the fourth kind of this issue of really uh, being happy or um, putting a magnifying glass on those differences that make us us, not just purely assimilating into some corporate weird entity, which leads me to kind of the second topic I want to talk about with you. Um, you ran DVF. You were the president of a company, a company that had Juicy Couture, Bebe, BCBG. Uh, division of Oscar de la Renta. I mean, it's just astounding. Um, and I know you've been mostly on the business side, but you have to know something about fashion and taste and all these things. And talk a little bit about building a career in fashion and, and something that's so driven by at the root art and taste, but really it's a business. It is, but it's also really driven at the end of the day, it is about a consumer. And so therefore it's always around culture and change. And that's what I've realized over my career is that number one, I was always focused on consumer when I was making clothes for my sisters, when I was making clothes for their friends, when I was making clothes and selling it to friends in college, like it was all about those people, what they wanted to wear, what I thought they would want to wear, uh, whether, you know, someone was hiring me to make their prom dress, which happened. And I didn't do a great job, but I tried. <laughs> or it was, what, was it really puffy? Was it a really puffy, ugly prom dress? No, it was actually quite beautiful, but the problem was I didn't understand the difference in needles at the time, and so the fabric was very delicate, and I used a very thick needle, so it just it punctured the fabric a little bit too much. Anyway, jeez, oh, I'm sorry anyway. I asked. We're not going to get into needles here. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but I, I was recently reminded of that dress and I was like, it was a beautiful dress. It just unfortunately had a few too many holes in it. But 
so going back to the consumer, yes, it's about commerce and it is about building a business, but it's ultimately about how consumers are viewing themselves. And for many years, we in the industry were able to dictate what people thought was on trend and what you were going to wear. And it was the big brands. And that existed until 2009 when all of a sudden there became DDC brands and all of a sudden then followed influencers and then followed more than just Facebook. And Can all I stop you for a second? Can I say DTC? Can you describe that? Is that like Bonobos? Like what's DTC? Yeah, direct to consumer businesses. Bonobos was definitely one of them. Birdies, which does just footwear. Kuyana, who does both of those are Latina brands that does handbag accessories. And they essentially, their business model was to skip the middleman because as vendors who are selling to a retailer, you're buying from a factory, you're then, you know, you're designing everything, sending it overseas, having somebody make it, they're giving you their cost, you're coming it in, you're having to make a markup, you're giving it to a retailer, they have to make a markup. And so therefore they have a price for the consumer. So the D to C business model was about skipping that middleman. And you're closer to the consumer and you're closer to the consumer closer to the consumer. It was all about the internet. It was all about building community. And it was a beneficial price for the consumer at the end of the day. And so that certainly changed the industry dramatically, but also influencers changed the industry because all of a sudden they started saying, yeah, you know what? I don't want to wear Prada head to toe or Ralph Lauren head to toe, or I want to wear what I want to wear and how I want to wear it. I might mix it with some vintage or I might do this or that high, low. So all kinds of trends change. And then you know, we've had so many different decades of because there was a certain type of music culturally that was right or fit in, then it was denim was really the hottest thing. Or yeah. now it might be, you know, another another type of of apparel or fashion related items that have some sort of connection to the music that culturally is relevant. Or now there's all about athletes. You know, if you talk about Taylor Swift and forget his first name, Travis Kelsey? Or- yeah, yeah, well, that's that. Uh, talk, talk about a power couple for sure. Well, yeah, but that's, you know, but that is something. So then you're thinking about that tie. How does that actually tie into what people want to wear and how they want to look? And it all plays back into the consumer. So while it is busy building a business and it's about taste and you know, everybody has their own taste. Yeah, I was talking to somebody at a big uh, digital marketing agency. It's funny, but he, I mean, he's an amazing person but he's 28. So he's only lived with his, you know, just kind of what we think about today as influencers, uh, Kim Kardashian's, you know, send something, million people look at it, 30, you know, 30,000 people click through and, you know, she makes her cut, everybody makes her cut. But the evolution towards that is kind of what you're describing is kind of this top-down approach, mass, you know, mass production, you know, six turns on a year. And now, you know, kind of, uh, it's interesting that you walked us through that evolution, which I want to now move into what is going to be probably the last, I could keep talking to you forever, but kind of the last part of our show, which is we talked about the past, we talked about the present and now the future. And Shein is making all kinds of waves for a lot of reasons, you know, because you can buy tops for a dollar, you know, the, the, let's leave aside all the potential issues with the company, but is this a new iteration of kind of mass fashion, like how do you view the future? Where are we going with this thing? Mm, Well, it is a conundrum because we have consumers who we thought Gen Z was so focused on sustainability and ensuring that they are connected with brands and businesses that have the same values, but at the same time, they're clearly buying 
product that is a dollar and they know that that's not being manufactured in places that have exactly. fair wages and other. Yep. So th there's a conundrum there and it's, it's definitely something that is quite challenged. But I think at the same time, we also have to look at what's happening with the world around us mm -hmm. because it doesn't matter what retailer you look at. Consumers have a much more limit. Generally, consumers have a much more limited discretionary income. I'm not suggesting that everybody does that. I just think that it has clearly mm -hmm. been a a very very rocket ship trajectory with this business, and price and trend have really driven that. And I think that happened with H and M at a time. It happened with Zara at a time as well. And they definitely shook up the industry and now everybody kind of coexists, right? What do they stand for? Do they stand aligned with businesses and brands whose leaders say things that maybe they're against, which obviously we're seeing happen in a lot of cases in certain sectors, or do they really not care? And they just want to find something really cute. That's going to make them look great for their date on Saturday night. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're up against right now is, is where people are putting their money is going to show what they're, what their passions are, what they stand for. And we're, we're at a turning point because of all the different macroeconomic issues that we have that are impacting that. More breadth, but less depth. And that hasn't necessarily been the case again until direct-to-consumer brands came and started making a shift in how we looked at business overall. Consumers have a lot of issues that they have to contend with yeah. today. And the dollar in their pocketbook is, is going to vote in what's the most important today. You answered the question better than the, the way I asked it. I use Shen just because they're in the in the public, you know, kind of consciousness right now. But really, you touched on issues that drive any consumer product, including stuff we put on ourselves and close ourselves with, which is you know the inflation, uh, geopolitics, people trying to you know onshore or nearshore at least some of these things. I have to ask you: You've been around the game for a while. Is there any one or any company or anything yet that you admire that has kind of stood the test of time, have been real innovators kind of in this space? Oh, my favorite company of all time is Patagonia. And the reason Patagonia is my favorite and, and I, I don't work for and have not worked for Patagonia would love to at some point, yeah. but have not helped make a plug there. No, I, I just think that for a company that has truly stood by their values, and been more concerned with their consumer and their loyal customers versus what everyone else and all the different voices mm -hmm. are telling them. I really admire them for that. And really being a thought leader and a leader in the industry as it, as it relates to true sustainability and really mm -hmm. focusing in your core on what you stand for. I just think that's been a brilliant company. Overall, I do think that there are companies that are legacy businesses. Obviously, Diamond Furstenberg has been around for 47 years. You know, that's you can't shake that off. That is still something that everyone knows the wrap dress and people know she's empowering for other women. And Ralph Lauren, obviously, is still around and Tommy Hilfiger is still around. And they've done a great job of continuing to modernize their business through new customers. So there are those traditional and legacy businesses that once they stay with their original and core DNA and just add or move into additional demographics because there's new generations coming in, they continue to be successful. But as we've seen with many legacy businesses, when they forget who their customer is or they try to be something else, something different to change completely, that backfires. 
nine times out of 10, it backfires. So really staying core to the DNA and, and who you are as a company. And again, I've mentioned Patagonia that's been around for a long time. Um, and then there will be new ones, you know, that will be around longer. I mean, look at Warby Parker, right? They're very focused on what they do. They've continued to be successfully opening up more and more stores. And they have, if you think about who their competition is, they have a lot of local, regional, national competitors. But you think of Warby Parker and they give you options that can be mailed to you. You can try it out at home and you have a great experience. And I think now we're so focused on what those experiences and conveniences are as consumers that we want everything on demand and those companies that can deliver it are the ones that are going to win. Love the, uh, again, multifaceted answer. I am actually, my, my favorite brand of all time is in fact Patagonia, not just clothes, but overall. And to be clear to the listeners, we're not getting paid by Patagonia in any way. Maybe I'll send them the <laughs> podcast and we'll get a maybe an influencer, a nickel or, or something. But uh, uh, they're an incredible company. And I think you, you're hitting on this issue of brand extension. They've been, I mean, an amazing business because they turn literally trash into clothes. And then they charge you three times what their competitors charge you. So, you know, they are proof positive that, a, that an authentic brand that stays true to its values and is doing good stuff for the world and humanity and sustainability actually makes more money, which is something that, you know, people try to divorce kind of this value with values. Um, it doesn't surprise me that you um, that you are so thoughtful on all these things, Sandra. I really appreciate you stopping by and uh, I look forward to, you know, uh, everything you're going to do next. So thank you. Oh, thank you. Thanks so much. I'm, I'm excited to, to listen to all of your podcasts and, and learn more from people. So thank you. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. For information and links about today's guests, check out the show notes and visit topofthegame-thepod.com. Your host, Javier Sade, the show Top of the Game. Thanks for listening.